Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering getaways to charming Victoria, B.C. with daily flights. Just a quick 45-minute flight from Seattle to Victoria's Inner Harbor, from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. The fallout continues from an Alabama state Supreme Court ruling that declared frozen embryos are people. Alabama's state house is scheduled to hold a hearing today on a bill designed to shield doctors who perform IVF from legal prosecution. There's a similar effort in Congress from Senate Democrats who want to extend protections for IVF nationwide. The state court's ruling earlier this month said embryos in a lab are protected under the state's wrongful death of a minor act. And it threw fertility treatment in Alabama into a tailspin. Some clinics, including the University of Alabama at Birmingham, have paused treatment. And the situation has stirred up a political fracas, with many Republicans declaring their support for assisted reproductive medicine. Well, Democrats are crying foul and arguing the Alabama ruling is in line with the conservative-backed personhood movement and the dismantling of Roe v. Wade. Here to talk about IVF, the politics surrounding it, and the legal questions clouding patients' access are Victoria Knight, a healthcare policy reporter with Axios, Dr. Ginny Ryan, University of Washington Medicine reproductive endocrinologist and an infertility specialist, and Professor Sheetal Kalantri, Seattle University School of Law professor and an associate dean of the law school there and an expert in reproductive law. We also want to hear from you. Have you received or considered pursuing IVF treatments? Or has your family expanded thanks to assisted reproductive medicine? What's your reaction to what's happening right now in Alabama and nationwide? Leave us a voicemail at 206-221-3213, and we'll share your thoughts at the end of the show. Again, that number is 206-221-3213. Victoria Knight, let's start with you, since this is a developing story today. Senators Tammy Duckworth and Washington Senator Patty Murray are trying to channel this surge in support for IVF into a new law protecting doctors and clinics at the federal level. What are they up to? Absolutely. So, yes, Senator Duckworth and um, several other Senate Democrats, there's also a House version of this bill, um, they introduced this bill in January. And as you said, this bill would codify the right to access IVF. It also would protect providers of IVF, so the medical providers and doctors who provide this service for families. And then it would also preempt any state prohibitions on IVF, such as what's happening in Alabama. So um, this bill was introduced in January, and then yesterday, Senator Duckworth announced that she was going to request unanimous consent for this bill on the Senate floor. That's actually happening this afternoon, Eastern time, um, around 5 p.m. Eastern time. And what unanimous consent means is basically it's an expedited way to try to get a bill passed in the Senate because passing bills in the Senate often takes a really long time. And so um, unanimous consent means uh, you need all 100 senators to agree to this bill. And the way to block that is just you just need one senator to stand up and say, hey, I, I don't approve of this bill. I want to block it. So it, it is expected that a GOP senator will stand up and do that most likely. Um, we don't know who um, in 2022 Senator Duckworth tried to do this with a similar bill. And Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith stood up and and set, blocked it, and she is the head of the pro-life caucus in the Senate, so it kind of makes sense. 
Yeah. So it's a pretty high risk sort of maneuver to try to push this through so quickly. And what you're saying, Victoria, is there's not a lot of optimism that this is actually going to get through on unanimous consent. But the point here, right, is to get folks on the record. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it, it's pretty well known. I, I talked to GOP senators this week and they they did not want to commit to supporting this bill. They did like to say, hey, we support IVF. They kind of hedged on the bill itself and pivoted to also saying, we think this may be a state's rights issue. We want to see how states handle it. So um, that all of that kind of indicates it's probably going to fail on the Senate floor this afternoon. But So I think um, basically it, it becomes somewhat of a messaging exercise on Democrats. So they're saying we want to show that we support this and we want to show Republicans on the Senate floor having to stand up and say we don't support this. And even though they're on the record saying, hey, we support IVF, but they don't want to support a bill that would guarantee the federal right to IVF. Dr. Ginny Ryan, I want to kind of set some baseline for the medical issues involved here. This Alabama ruling stems from a case where a hospital patient somehow was able to access a fertility clinic freezer where embryos were stored. And this person picked up some of the containers of embryos, which were very cold, and they burned his hand and he dropped them and they broke so that three couples now are suing over the destruction of their embryos. They're suing the clinic and the hospital involved. Can you explain to folks who may not have gone through these treatments or may not understand why are extra embryos created in the IVF process and what are the typical safe storage practices for embryos? Sure. Yeah, thanks. That story that has gotten out around this this bill has, you know, been one that's been discussed, of course, in IVF centers all across the country. Access should not be that easy at all. There should be, you know, many safeguards in place for that. Um, you know, locks on the doors to the IVF procedure suites, locks on the doors to the embryology lab, um, uh, you know, locks as well, cryo storage facilities, um, uh, you know, separate from the IVF embryology lab as well. So it it is remarkable that that happened and would be um, highly unlikely. Um, and, you know, and, and clearly was a failure in, in security in that lab. Um, to your question about why extra embryos are made, there are hundreds of thousands of, of embryos in cryo storage around the country, some within facilities themselves and some in um, cryo storage facilities that are separate and run by separate companies um, because it can be expensive, you know, to, to store and it can become, you know, take up quite a lot of space, honestly, when you start to have these numbers of, of uh, embryos in cryo storage. And we also have eggs and sperm as well in cryo storage in our facilities. Um, the reason basically is that reproduction is inefficient. Um, in general, fewer than 20% of all eggs will eventually make um, make it to a, uh, a pregnancy. Um, and so part of the reason that IVF is successful, um, especially in cases of infertility, but also in cases where um, we're doing IVF to avoid passing along genetic disease to our offspring, there's going to be a lot of abnormal chromosomally abnormal and developmentally abnormal embryos. So we have to start with a lot of eggs. Um, and, and that's how IVF starts with stimulating um, 
the ovaries to produce a lot of eggs, and then there's attrition at every stage. So you have maybe 70% of those eggs will give you an embryo, maybe 50% of those early embryos will give you an embryo that has developed to the point of transfer into the uterus. And even then, only 50% or, or less of those embryos transferred will give you a pregnancy. So um, in order to make it uh, you know, an effective treatment, and when that's at all you know, that's not cost prohibitive. It's already expensive, but to, to avoid making it even more cost prohibitive, you have to have that, you have to overcome those inefficiencies with numbers. And I think that's important to get to. So there is this attrition rate for IVF created embryos where you're doing genetic testing, you will have situations where, you know, some embryos will be discarded because they are not viable or they're not, you know, in the the, the right condition that um, doctors are hoping for before implantation. And so that plays into the reason that this ruling in Alabama is so important, right? I know that you can't comment on what Alabama clinics directly are experiencing with the Supreme Court declaring that IVF embryos are people. But in general, how does the risk of wrongful death lawsuits over the destruction of embryos affect the practice of IVF medicine? I mean, it, it's completely chilling, obviously, um, as what happened in Alabama um, with everybody pausing treatment. I, you know, an institution does not want to have to face that litigation, um, nor does increasingly private IVF clinics out there are being funded by private equity money, for example. That's a trend in, in this field. And so whether it's an institutional, you know, funding and legal backup or private equity funds, um, you know, that's going to be incredibly expensive. And so nobody wants to face that. And so think things are going to close that, you know, access to care is already an issue with uh, for infertility care across the country. And it's just it's it's frightening. Um, it could have a devastating effect on access to care because nobody's going to want to support these clinics and the potential litigation. Sheetal Kalantri with Seattle University what are your reflections on the legal implications of the Alabama Supreme Court's decision? I mean, what happens when embryos transform from property to people under the law? So it's a very significant decision in um, terms of legal jurisprudence. There were several bases, you know, that were set up um, uh, before this even came to fore, right? One, the idea that at day one, even inside the uterus, the embryo is, or the fetus is a human being. Then the second laws and legal analysis that has been setting this up is that criminal liability, liability for a pregnant person who might be a drug addict and a fetus is harmed, they might have criminal liability, right? So setting up the idea of personhood again inside um, the womb. And then now it follows, they say, look, if they're people, in on day one in the womb, why are they not people on day one or day three outside? So it's sort of this precedent that's been long developing and building up and it following along very naturally. And I think it is worrisome, obviously. Um, I do think that the public sentiment, though, I, they may have gone too far. This was a fairly extreme decision. And, and Alabama is already a fairly extreme state, right? They have in their constitution, unborn children are people. They passed a total abortion ban years before Dobbs, and now it's in effect. So um, this kind of sentiment comes from uh, a, a very extreme state. 
um, and may or may not um, happen in other states. Yeah, I think that's important to talk about it. You know, the ruling quotes, at least the chief justice's portion of it, quotes the Bible and um, expresses the desire of Alabama voters to not offend God. And it's it's like heavily biblical, the um, the language that's used. And I think what you're saying about Alabama being an extreme ruling is important because, you know, the Supreme Court ruled based on these two standards. One was the 1872 Wrongful Death of a Minor Act, which exists in Alabama, that lets people sue for damages if their child dies. And then this 2018 state constitutional amendment, as you mentioned, that recognized the sanctity of unborn life and the rights of unborn children. So while this is an extreme ruling and it's based on a very specific set of circumstances in Alabama, one important thing I think it illuminates is this personhood movement that has been building over several years in several states. Uh, Professor Kalantri, can you tell me about the personhood movement and why that's an important part of reproductive uh, medicine and, and the fight for reproductive rights right now? This decision sort of takes things to the extreme. For decades, there's been criminal liability for people who either harm a fetus through an assault of a pregnant person or liability for the pregnant person um, themselves. And typically, we think of these inside of a, of, a, of a womb inside of a person. But to say, well, you know, and it's ironic, they're citing, you know, the affirmative action decision to say, well, we equal protection. We, can, we have to equally protect the, the embryo as we do the person inside. So it's a statutory basis, really, that they used, even though they're citing all the God and law and Bible. But the statute is this wrongful death of a minor, which you said, and it's fairly broad. It says that it's, you know, not just intentionally harm the embryo, but negligently harm or by omission. So that's the worry if for these clinics is that accidentally, even if we do something, which accidents happen, right? Um, they could have held this on negligence, right? Clearly, as um, Dr. Ryan said, this is not proper protocol that was followed likely in this Alabama clinic, why a patient could go in and intentionally ha- you know, try to handle embryos. So they could have been decided on medical negligence alone, and they could have given that vindication to the the, the owners or the parents of the embryos. So I think that is really um, what is fundamentally different and extreme about this decision. And Dr. Ryan, would a negligence ruling have changed the calculus for clinics that are fearful of liability? I mean, there's still the risk of um, negligence, uh, you know, liability in all kinds of medical practice, right? Right. I think that would have seemed, I think a negligence ruling would have seemed um, appropriate. I mean, that that does, I think, strike everybody in the field as being negligence if, if there's an ability to, to access embryos in their cryostorage tanks and liquid nitrogen. So, um, so that, I don't, I don't think that would have merited, you know, much of a conversation, except perhaps for all lab directors out there to just, again, just reemphasize the importance of safety and security in their in their facilities, but um, but yeah, it, it's absolutely the personhood issue because as as um, Professor Kalantri mentioned, you know there it is it is absolutely normal and everybody is um, counseled uh, in their shared decision making in their care that there is just a natural say two percent or less, but still possibility that embryos don't survive the freezing and thawing. There is the very rare but possible chance. These are microscopic, you know, balls of cells um, 
that they may be lost in normal handling, even in, with the best of intentions. And then there's the huge number um, that we've already kind of mentioned of embryos that have chromosomal abnormalities um, just normally and, you know, and could be the majority of embryos depending on a, a patient's age um, or that just normally arrest in development as they go from their the first day to the fifth or sixth day in, in the lab. So, you know, this is, <laughs> it, it's, it's, hugely impactful um, when it comes down to the personhood aspect of it. That's Dr. Ginny Ryan, a University of Washington reproductive endocrinologist. And I'm also joined by Shital Kalantri with the Seattle University School of Law and Victoria Knight, a reporter for Axios. We'll be back to explore more on the politics surrounding the Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are people and how the legal confusion is impacting doctors and patients. Coming up on SoundSide, stay with us right here on KUOW. Back with more Soundside, I'm Libby Dankman, and I'm talking with a panel of experts about frozen embryos created for IVF and their new status as people with legal rights, at least in Alabama, according to the state Supreme Court there. We're digging into the legal, political and medical confusion this ruling has caused. And I'm joined by Victoria Knight, a healthcare policy reporter with Axios, Dr. Ginny Ryan, University of Washington Medicine reproductive endocrinologist, and Professor Shital Kalantri, Seattle University School of Law professor and associate dean at the School of Law, as well as an expert in reproductive law. And we also want to hear from you if you've had IVF treatment, you're considering it, or you've seen your family expand thanks to IVF. What are your thoughts about the Alabama ruling? Leave us a voicemail at 206-221-3213. Again, that's 206-221-3213 to weigh in on the conversation. And Victoria Knight, let's talk about the politics here. There really seems to have been like a moment of hesitation right after the Alabama Supreme Court ruling came down where Republicans were split on how to respond. I mean, Nikki Haley said that embryos are babies in her mind. But other figures on the right, like Mike Pence and his wife Karen, have talked about using IVF to have children and wanting to protect that. So what's been happening in Congress? Is the Republican Party confused about how it wants to respond to Alabama? Yeah, absolutely. I think Republicans are still kind of trying to figure that out. Um, As I I talked about a little bit earlier, you're seeing kind of a range of responses, um, but kind of consistent across our Republicans are saying, we support IVF. And I think you're hearing when I talk to senators or, or you're seeing people in their statements, they are saying, I used IVF. People in my family have used IVF. Um, they have constituents that have used IVF. It's such a um, technology that has been used by so many different people, so many different types of families. You know, um, I'm sure Dr. Ryan can talk about, but um, cancer survivors, people that might have a genetic disorder in their their history. Um, just people that have trouble with infertility. So I think that's such a huge swath of people that that that's not something that is defined by politics that that happens to both Republicans and Democrats. And so I think there is strong support um, uh, for IVF just across the U.S. So um, I think then Republicans have to figure out how, how how do we talk about it because we know so many people support it. So um, yeah, so that they basically have said, hey, we support this, but um, what we haven't really seen from them is uh, a stance on what they think should be done with the embryos. 
So, you know, as, as we've talked about, um, sometimes the embryos need to be destroyed. I'm sure Dr. Ryan can talk about that a little more, but within the process, they need to be destroyed. And so that raises a lot of questions. And um, if you're, if you believe that an embryo is a life, then um, that can be a tricky thing. And um, some, some people in Congress are very, as they like to call themselves, pro-life. And so to them, it, it may mean a life. Um, and so I think that's why we're not seeing them necessarily talk about what a fertilized embryo means in their statements um, or what should be done with the embryos in their statements. So, um, yeah, it's a um, it's a tricky topic. It's a tough needle to thread, right? I mean, this is a this yeah. is a very sticky issue for Republicans right now. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, we've seen former President Trump came out and said, Hey, um, I support IVF, and I think the Alabama legislature needs to do something about this. Um, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson said essentially the same thing. So I think they're also potentially wanting to rely on just the Alabama legislature to come up with a solution and then maybe not talk about it anymore. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But um, until another state potentially does something like this. Um, But I I think one more thing I wanted to highlight is... uh, so we actually did some reporting on an Axios Ipsos poll that came out today, and it said that two thirds of Americans do not agree with the stance that a fertilized embryo is a person. So I think, again, that kind of just comes down to how popular IVF is and, and how much people support this technology. What about the personhood movement in Congress? I mean, You already see, for example, in Florida, there was a bill that was introduced this session that would have established the right to sue over the wrongful death of a fetus. Um, There has been a back off from that. Even the author has shelved it because they got so much blowback after the Alabama ruling. um, And the Republican Party as a whole is trying to really show that it does support IVF. Um, So at the state level, you see Republican lawmakers pausing and backing off The thing that I think is a cognitive dissonance is that in Congress, you have a number of folks and and nationwide who have said, I support IVF. And yet they've also signed on to, for example, um, support of personhood legislation in the past. Are they addressing that dissonance between those positions? Yeah, that's a a great thing to highlight. Um, And uh, you're seeing um, Democratic political um, groups highlighting that for sure. Um, And specifically a bill called the Life at Conception Act. And so that legislation does define, it's basically life when a sperm meets an egg. Um, So that's just like very early in the process, you know. Um, And so I think we're still seeing how members of Congress are kind of addressing that. there's definitely this sense that they're saying they support IVF, but they also are signed on to bills. So like that Life at Conception Act, there's over 100 sponsors in the House. Um, And you've seen members who are on that bill come out and say, hey, we support IVF. And we haven't really seen them say much past that. Um, And that's partly because they're in recess right now. They're actually coming back today. And so I think there's going to be a lot of reporters asking them today. So maybe we'll get a little more answers. But yeah, maybe you'll be one of them. Um, Professor (laughs) Shital Kalantri, 
um, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra is one of the many Democrats that's gone out and tried to make this connection that the U.S. Supreme Court Dobbs decision has enabled this Alabama ruling. Um, President Biden has tried to link this threat to IVF with Donald Trump's Supreme Court picks. Other conservatives have pushed back, however, because, you know, this personhood movement did exist before Dobbs overturned Roe v. Wade. Um, There have long been laws on the books recognizing, as you mentioned, two victims of a crime if a pregnant woman is killed. Do you think that it's a compelling argument to link the Alabama ruling with Dobbs? So uh, let's be clear, right? The idea of the personhood movement typically uh, centered on a entity inside of of a person, right? An embryo or a fetus or whatever stage of development you call. And there were possibilities of criminal liability and now increasingly civil liability. Again, what is incredible about this and no other jurisdiction has ever done this, is that outside of a person, an embryo is also a a human being, right? And outside of the womb, outside of the uterus. But do you think that it's fair that they're saying that this was the Dobbs ruling that enabled it? Because I think a lot of conservatives are saying, no, this is abortion. This is a separate thing from what is happening with IVF. So I think that the Dobbs ruling, not in terms of a legal precedent, allowed this. They could have done this without Dobbs. I think what allowed this is the feeling of, well, now we're free to do what we want. Sentiment has changed, right? We can now um, move forward and make it all possible. But certainly Dobbs has clearly helped, right? In the sense of it, it, it legally it's saying, hey, it's no longer um, protected abortion as a right even at day one. And so if it's not protected, you know, inside, then outside, there must be some protection. So I think there is a thread that can be linked um, with this, both kind of tangentially jurisprudently, but certainly politically. Dr. Ryan, you know, some folks who are pursuing IVF treatment or were pursuing it in Alabama have reportedly now been looking to leave the state to transport embryos across state lines to continue their procedures. But at least one company that provides this service has said they have to pause transport because they're also concerned about liability. Again, if something happened to these embryos in the process of moving them, can you describe the role that timing plays in IVF procedures? What's the consequence for patients in Alabama who have to be in limbo during these weeks where the legal um, the legal situation is sorted out? Yeah, it's it's got to be horrible. I mean, um, I think, you know, we've seen, it's been great to see these stories, um, honestly, to kind of to, to hear the stories, because I think that's so impactful. Um, you know, so you're hearing about patients who, um, you know, were right in the middle of a, of a treatment cycle, um, and have had to, you know, either try to somehow, you know, shift their care outside of the state, um, or just you know, that 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 results in a, a loss of money and obviously a loss of, you know, a lot of time that's been spent in preparing for that treatment cycle for the person who's actually in cycle. A typical cycle, you know, sort of lasts for two weeks of the treatment and then some some weeks in advance of of preparation. But also just in establishing that caring, you know, and fiduciary relationship with the clinic is so important. And for infertility is such a you know, we call it a journey, but it's really more of a roller coaster. And, uh, you know, it it, it can be, uh, um, you know, just exhausting and distressing. Um, and so to 
to have developed established that relationship with your clinical team um, and then be in the midst of treatment or looking forward to treatment in the coming months and then be told, no, sorry, we, we don't know what to do. Um, we're in limbo. Um, it's just got to be horrible. Um, you know, most most infertility patients have been years into their their roller coaster um, by the time they get to IVF, um, including a lot of um, because of inadequate insurance coverage around the country. Um, that often means the patients are um, in it with a lot of their um, a lot of money um, and a lot of investment. Um, and to feel like they also have no control over what happens with the embryos, you know, I, you know, we feel strongly in the field that patients should have the disposition rights over their embryos and to now feel like they, what are we going to do with these, you know, these embryos? We were, we finished building our family and now we were excited to donate them for research or we wanted to just discard them, you know, as, as is appropriate to do. Um, but instead we're now going to be paying storage fees. We can't ship them out of state. Um, it, it just is taking that, you know, locus of control one more time away from the patients where they feel out of control already. So um, it's just got to be very traumatizing. And I appreciate you centering the patients there as well. But for providers, I mean, at its core, the Alabama decision has introduced more uncertainty into the practice of reproductive medicine, right? I mean, the Dobbs decision removed the constitutional right to an abortion. It also changed a lot of the calculus for various reproductive health procedures in the states that have banned abortion. Um, Dr. Ryan, can you give us a sense of how things just broadly have changed in your field over the past few mm -hmm. years? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think everybody, I know everybody in, um, in reproductive health feels that they're not just in a silo of, you know, taking care of, we're not just taking care of people who need an abortion. We're not just taking care of people who right now need to help to become pregnant. It's a, it's a, it's a comprehensive, you know, reproductive care for a patient's over their lifespan. Um, and in our particular subspecialty, we care for, you know, adult children, adolescents, reproductive age, menopause. So we really feel like reproductive health and reproductive rights kind of span at any point in that uh, in that time where people may or may not um, want to build a family. Um, and so it just feels like <laughs> people are coming at us, you know, in every way to try to take um, the ability to help our patients away from us and just wade into this world where they don't know what they're talking about, <laughs> you know, quite frankly. I mean, I think that's why there's so much um, so much confusion around this recent ruling because, um, you know, you hear legislators talking about, well, well, yes, of course, I want more children. Well, you know, in 2021, there were 300 children born from IVF, um, which is the last year that, that the numbers are accessible. Um, I'm sure it's more than that in the subsequent years. And so, you know, you're, you're, you're just taking away that, that ability to grow families in Alabama. So anyway, so it's just, it's been frustrating. It's been distracting. Um, and it's been really hard. I also think about, um, University of Alabama, Birmingham has just established a fellowship program in, in our field in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, um, very recently in the recent weeks. And now just like where states are restricted in their ability to teach how to, you know, how to perform abortions and provide that care. We also now have restrictions on multidis you know, multidisciplinary and comprehensive care for our reproductive endocrinology and infertility physicians as well. So broadly frustrating. Yeah. We have to get towards a wrap up here, but 
Professor Sheetal Kalantri with Seattle University, you know, you heard Dr. Ryan talk about the fact that patients now have uncertainty over the disposition of their embryos, what happens to those embryos. Um, And then you also have a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen with the federal legislation that Victoria Knight has been talking about. I mean, what threads are you going to be focused on as this all unfolds? Uh, What do you think are the most important things for folks to be following here um, as this story develops? You know, this is going to become very difficult for people in Alabama who are infertile and need uh, IVF to conceive and have access to it. It's just simply difficult to go out of state, right? You can think, okay, an abortion, it's maybe a one-time, two-time event. You can go out of state for it. Even surrogacy, which I've worked on some um, restrictive states, now there are fewer of them, but like Michigan restricts it. Okay, we can hire a surrogate outside of state because uh, the surrogate lives outside of the state, right? And the parents can just go one or once or twice and the child can be birthed. But this is significant, I think, because um, it involves multiple visits to the doctor, multiple rounds for for IVF. So I think that's what we should be looking at. And the legis- maybe Alabama might act. The legislature, I think they might show us that even this decision was out of line with, with uh, the extremely conservative views of Alabama. And so I think we would probably want to look for other states to do it, but I'd be surprised if other states go so far as to say that an omission, just leaving an embryo for 36 hours and letting it be destroyed subjects you to a wrongful death claim. I'd be surprised if others do that. Victoria Knight with Axios, anything you'll be following, obviously, as the um, situation in Congress develops today, but long term on this story? Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, I'm going to watch the the UC request, unanimous consent request today on the Senate floor. Um, I think it'll be also interesting to see um, that, like I said, the House comes back today. So I think um, seeing, you know, Republicans are in the majority in the House, so it's unlikely any IVF legislation would necessarily move there. There is um, a resolution that is being uh, circulated by one House Republican member, Nancy Mace, who has tried to be very outspoken about certain aspects of women's health. And so it'd be interesting to maybe see if she could get any Republicans to sign on to that. Um, and then I think the long term, um, I think seeing, you know, it's also possible um, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer could ask for a roll call vote on the, the Senate bill. And so then it would really put individual senators on the record. So I think that could be really powerful. Um, It could be really powerful for campaign messaging for the Democratic side. It would make, um, because like I said, only need one senator today. So you don't need all of them to stand up and say things. So that that could be really interesting. Um, And then I think kind of tying back to what we talked about with um, how it relates to like just politics in general, the campaign season, I think we're going to keep seeing IVF be an issue until if if the Alabama legislature resolves it, maybe it would die down. But until they do, I think we're going to keep talking about it. Um, and as we said, it, it's a topic that families care a lot about. And so I think it's going to dominate the conversation. And when we're talking about reproductive health, potentially for the next little bit, and um, tie into the anti-abortion things, potentially. So uh, I think it's something that is not going away at this point. Certainly not going away. Dr. Ryan, final thoughts and anything that you are really hoping is resolved uh, legislatively or legally here when it comes to IVF specifically? 
Oh goodness! I mean, <laughs> I'm we're we're all looking, watching very closely to see what happens. Uh, you know, I I was aware of Senator Duckworth's bill before all of this happened, and and you know, of course, naively, um, I'm hopeful <laughs> for that, and I think we all are. Um, and we're also, you know, just rallying. Um, and encouraging people within our profession and our patients to use their voices um, and talking to our legal folks and seeing how we can, you know, kind of keep apprised and be ready for um, whatever comes our way. That's Dr. Jenny Ryan, a University of Washington medicine, reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. You also heard from Professor Shital Kalantri, Seattle University School of Law professor and is an associate dean at the law school there and an expert in reproductive law, as well as Victoria Knight, healthcare policy reporter with Axios. Thank you, everybody, for being here and for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks. And we've also been collecting your voicemails, weighing in on the Alabama State Supreme Court ruling, declaring that frozen embryos in a lab are people. Tom from Issaquah called in with an interesting question. My daughter just recently had our second grandchild as a result of IVF. She still has six embryo on ice. Can she now claim eight dependents on her taxes since? It now appears in Alabama anyway that embryo are people. Interesting, Tom. Thanks very much for your call. And also congratulations on your second grandchild. Uh, Jennifer also shared her thoughts. I'm a mom to two kids born via IVF. And I think the politics of this will show a real race and class divide in terms of where the right wing is aligned. Um, IVF is a service that is eligible to wealthy white women, whereas other reproductive rights are used by a wider variety of women. I imagine the uh, Republicans will figure out a way to justify extending rights to their privileged group here. You know, Jennifer calling out the class issue here is so important. IVF treatments can be tens of thousands of dollars, and most people's health care plans do not cover them. Um, I want to wrap up here with Amy and Eric, who called with their hopes for the future. We actually are a military family, and it took us several years and IVF many rounds um, to actually have our son at literally the last hour. (laughs) It was our last try when we found out we were pregnant. Um, We were devastated to hear that because we know how important and hard it is, especially for military families, to access that kind of care. Um, But we hope for all the families out there not to lose hope. And we would like to just send out our positive wishes and hope that Things are made easier in the future for family to access care like that and not more difficult. Thanks for listening to Soundside. This show is only possible because listeners support us. If you're able to give right now, please check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.